Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. There has been a lot going on in the world recently, and to bring some ancient perspective to bear on the modern, we have today Paul Ray, who's a professor of history at Hillsdale College and their Charles O. Lee and Louise K. Lee Chair in Western Heritage. A historian of both ancient Greece and intellectual history, he's written a series of books on the grand strategy of classical Sparta. Today, we're here to talk about Sparta's Sicilian proxy war. We'll be discussing not only this ancient proxy war between Athens and Sparta, but also modern proxy wars like those happening in Israel and Ukraine. With no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Paul, welcome to the show. It's a real delight to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've written, this is one of a long series of books that you've written about Sparta. Um, and one thing that at least kind of bothers me when people talk about Sparta is they tend to really emphasize uh, that Sparta and Athens are these kind of polar opposite forces in history. Um, and some of that is because people view America in some way as Athens. Athens was a democracy. Sparta had this very oppressive system of government uh, with helots. And so I'm wondering just kind of to kick us off as we start to investigate, you know, why this struggle between Athens and Sparta matters so much. How much of that is true? Are Sparta and Athens more similar or more dissimilar? Uh, they're more similar to one another than either is to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me start with something. Neither one of them is built on commerce. Right. Uh, neither one of them does without slavery. There's one point in the Peloponnesian War in which we learned that 20,000 slaves have fled Athens. Um, People who write about this don't write much about uh, slavery at Athens. They write about helots at Sparta. And to be fair, the ratio of Spartans to helots uh, is uh, smaller than the ratio of Athenians to slaves. But that's only because the Athenians have been less successful than the Spartans. Would they have been happy to have slaves on the Spartan scale? Of course they would have. Uh, The aim is to be a gentleman. (laughs) You don't have to work with your hands. Uh, The work is done by other people. That's built into the general Greek culture. Uh, Here's another thing. Uh, We have a tendency to think of democracies and to associate them with peace. Well, that's because we've substituted commerce for war. But Athens was a democracy, and it was at war almost all the time. Sparta, which you could call an oligarchy, was almost never at war. It's always preparing for war, but it's extremely cautious. There's a passage in Thucydides that everyone who studies this ought to read over and over again. It's Book 1, Paragraph 70. The Corinthians compare the Athenians and the Spartans. And the theme of it is Athenian audacity uh, and Spartan moderation. Uh, so, you know, to, to think about it uh, in, in, in modern terms uh, is a mistake. Hmm. Now, 
let me back off from that statement. It's partially true in this regard. Uh, Britain in the 19th century and the 18th century is a sea power. The United States has historically been primarily a sea power uh, because we were separated from uh, serious potential antagonists by the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. Athens is a sea power. Sparta is a land power. Uh, so was uh, Louis XIV's France. So was uh, the Kaiserreich uh, Germany. So was Hitler's Germany. So was the Soviet Union. And so is China today. So when you're thinking about sea power versus land power, there's an analogy. It's got a certain force. But when you begin to think of um, the propensity to make war, it's quite different. Uh, Sparta is a, a, a power resting upon a large body that is subject, and they're very cautious as a consequence. The Athenians are simply crazy. Uh, they're out to conquer the universe. And, and look, they, they have some reason to think they can. They beat the Persians at Marathon. They beat them at sea at Salamis. They beat them again at Eurymedon. They beat them again at Cypriot Salamis. Uh, they have achieved miracles. But when, of course, they go to Sicily, they don't achieve a miracle. So it's... It's complicated. They have a tendency to overreach. The Spartans don't have a tendency to overreach. Now, look, in this series of books, of which uh, uh, Sparta's Sicilian Proxy War, the one recently published, is the fifth, uh, I aim to look at the period from a Spartan angle rather than an Athenian angle, insofar as the evidence allows. Uh, what's the point of that? Well, you see things you wouldn't otherwise see. Furthermore, you study Sparta carefully. And when you do, you discover that uh, much of what you find in the modern secondary literature on Sparta is caricature. Uh, it's not a grim place to live, uh, unless you think that spring training baseball camp in Florida is a grim place to live. These are a bunch of guys who mess together, who eat together, who go hunting together, who work out together, um, and, and who um, uh, compete in sports and in uh, horse racing. Uh, and uh, it's a man's world, yes, although Spartan women are a lot freer than Athenian women are. Um, uh, the, the Athenian women live, at least those in families that can afford it, in something like Perda. Uh, Spartan women are out and about, and we hear about athletics among Spartan women. We don't hear about that among Athenian women. Uh, so it's, it's a different way of life, but the key thing to understand is all the other Greeks envy the Spartans. Mm, they live the life that people really would want to live. Um, the other thing, Spartans are supposed to be stupid. That's because the Athenians think they're really bright. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't quite work out that way. One of the things I noticed, and I'd never noticed it before I began working on these books, is the Spartans uh, 
over and over again outwit the Athenians. Uh, they do so in a naval battle uh, in the harbor at Syracuse. Uh, they uh, lure the Athenians into thinking that the fighting is over. Uh, they take a quick lunch and then they attack and they catch the Athenians off guard. They do the same thing at Eretria in another naval battle uh, a couple of years later. And that's what ha happens at Aegospotomy. The Spartans actually win the Peloponnesian War in the end because they outwit the Athenians. Uh, that they're, they're not stupid. Um, furthermore, if you look at their overall history, they're very skilled at diplomacy. Now, they have to be. They sit on a powder keg, all of those helots, who may outnumber the Spartiates by as much as seven to one. In those circumstances, they have an interest in peace. Uh, how do you achieve peace? Well, you make people afraid to fight you. That helps a great deal. And Spartan discipline is responsible for that. But the other thing is you have a skilled diplomatic corps. And I don't mean by the diplomatic corps professional diplomats, but I mean certain families that are involved with the outside world uh, and who are very skilled at the art of deal making. Um, the Athenians aren't nearly as good at that hmm. as the Spartans are. Again, you wouldn't think that, but you look at the details from a Spartan angle hmm. and you see things you wouldn't otherwise see. I'll give you one other example. Um, there's a passage uh, that refers to um, the thinking of Archidamus, king of Sparta, at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War when he first invades Attica. Uh, and what the passage reveals, and I, I sailed right past it for years and years and years. But when I was concentrating on Sparta, I read it very carefully and I noticed the following. His strategy in the war was to throw stasis, faction, into Athenian councils by driving a wedge between the farming population, uh, which had lands that were vulnerable to the Spartans and the Peloponnesians if they invaded, and the population of those who drew their livelihood from the Athenian empire, either by rowing in the fleet or by being involved in uh, the making of triremes, the fashioning of triremes, or uh, in governing the empire. Uh, and it's quite deliberate right from the get-go. And of course, it's this that leads to the revolution of 411 in Athens and to a later revolution. So it succeeds as a strategy. It doesn't succeed while Archidamus is alive. It succeeds when his son takes over and establishes a permanent Spartan or Peloponnesian presence in Attica and prevents the Athenians from farming their lands. So they have a very good idea of how this war could be won. It just takes a great deal of patience. And of course, the Spartans are patient hmm. and the Athenians are not. Um, so uh, it, 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 all sorts of things become visible when you look at it from the other side. So I, I really enjoyed um, that 
that you draw this distinction between they don't have so much in common with us culturally, but you can really actually draw in some ways pretty direct parallels in terms of the strategy that they employ in their strategic situations. But I want to pick on one detail in what you just said that really caught me. Um, it's so interesting that other poles would be jealous of the helots. I mean, from the way you describe them in your book, it seems like they're a big disadvantage. It's a powder keg. It's, you know, having that huge subjugated population makes it really risky to go to war. You're kind of constantly at the edge of war. And yet the other polis are jealous of that. Um, you know, I mean, if anything, Athens is able to be so much more aggressive in their international relations because they don't have that issue. So talk me through it. What What is there to be jealous of there? Well, keep in mind, there's no such thing as the dignity of labor in antiquity. Yeah. Uh, labor is undignified. And in Greek thinking, uh, people who actually work, especially people who work for clients uh, or, or who are hirelings, are assimilated to slaves. Mm. Uh, it, it's not till Christianity that you get the notion of the dignity of labor. Uh, you know, in Genesis, it says, uh, in the sweat of thy face, thou shalt eat thy bread. Now, it's a curse, but it is also a, a, a command of God that one work and therefore it has dignity. Uh, and when monasteries are established, uh, one, of the, one of the principles is laborare est orare, to work is to pray. Mm. Uh well, uh, the other thing is Christianity asserts the essential equality of mankind. St. Paul says, uh, in, in Christ there is no man, no woman, no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free. Uh, there is no notion of the essential equality of everyone in Greek thinking. So what do you want to be? You want to be a gentleman. And a gentleman doesn't work with his hands. He depends on the labor of others. Well, no one does that better than the Spartans. So, yes, on the one hand, the helots are a disadvantage, and Sparta's antagonists understand that and try to take advantage of it. On the other hand, they are the source of the good life. They make it possible. Uh, and look, if you, if you turn to Aristotle's politics and look at the best form of government in Aristotle's politics, they have slaves. Yeah. It's built on slavery. So uh, that's, that's the advantage that the Spartans have. Uh, now, the, this particular book that, that, that I recently published uh, is about a proxy war. And I, I had no intention of writing about that. I was going to do a, a brief chapter on the Sicilian expedition because it makes Athens vulnerable to Sparta. But then I reread the narrative from a Spartan angle and realized that the decisive moment in Athens Sicilian expedition is when a single Spartan shows up and puts steel into the spines of the Syracusans and persistently outwits the Athenians so that uh, he literally snatches victory uh, from the mouth of defeat. And if he hadn't come, it wouldn't have happened. So the Spartans, without making any major commitment, without any risk to themselves except one life, are able to transform the war. 
that gave me pause because I began to think, when are there proxy wars? And proxy wars happen when they're stalemates. When you get an enduring strategic rivalry between two powers, neither of which can deliver a knockout blow to the other. Uh, and that's true of Athens and Sparta. They fight over and over again to the point of exhaustion. They make a peace in the sense of a truce, and then they go back at it a few years later. Uh, proxy wars take place because it's an indirect way of bleeding your adversary. Uh, the nuclear stalemate of the Cold War led to a series of proxy wars. The Korean War, from a Russian perspective, was a proxy war. They could bleed the Americans. The Vietnam War, from a Chinese, then a Russian perspective, is a proxy war. They can bleed the Americans. The war in Afghanistan that was fought against the Russians with our help, uh, without, as far as I know, the loss of a single American soldier, though there may have been some CIA agents who were lost, uh, was a proxy war for us. And it arguably brought down the Soviet Union because it damaged their morale in a major, major way. We were on the receiving end of a proxy war in Afghanistan ourselves conducted by the Pakistanis. And in Iraq, we were on the receiving end of a proxy war organized by the Syrians and the Iranians. And of course, the Russians are on the receiving end of a proxy war supported by the United States and by uh, the NATO powers in Europe, including powers that had once been, been neutral. So everywhere you look, there are proxy wars. Uh, look, the American Revolution from a French perspective was a proxy war aimed at bringing down the British. Uh, and they sent not so very many troops. They did send a Navy uh, to North America to support the Americans in that war. And it had a profound effect on the British, though it had even greater effect on the French because it bankrupted them and led to the French Revolution. But, but these things happen. <laughs> uh, so in any case, by thinking about Sparta's role in that war, I found myself thinking more broadly about a tool of statecraft that has been frequently used uh, since uh, 1945, which is to say the proxy war uh, and, and when it can be fought, how it can be fought, and why one must avoid uh, being on the receiving end mm -hmm. in proxy wars. I mean, it, it's, it's uh, uh, what the Spartans do to the Athenians in Syracuse makes it possible, though not inevitable the Spartans will win the Peloponnesian War. It was a brilliant, brilliant operation. So I definitely want to talk more about the modern examples that you've brought up, but let's hone in a little bit on the Spartan-Sicilian proxy war for a bit here. And can you explain to the listeners who 
might not have the benefit of having read the four previous volumes. I mean, how do you get into a situation where, I mean, this can even happen? I mean, Athens and Sparta, we've said they have a fair amount in common. Why are they just constantly at each other's throats? Why does do they feel the need to get into this situation? And why does Athens go all in to say we really need Sicily? Yes. Well, that last question is a good question. And uh, the answer is for no good reason. Uh, but <laughs> let me leave that aside for the moment. Um, you've got two powers. One is a sea power. And uh, initially, the Spartans uh, are using Athens to fight a proxy war against the Persians. Uh, the Persians come, Xerxes invades Greece. The Spartans and the Athenians form an alliance. In the aftermath, the Athenians sort of elbow their way into command at sea, and the Spartans stand back. They're annoyed about this, and then they think, this is to our advantage. They get to do the dirty work. They get to die. We get to profit from this. So the Spartans maintain from 477 uh, down to 465, an attitude of cooperating with the Athenians against the Persians. When it looks as if the Persians have lost, that they are contained, the Spartans rethink. And they rethink this because they have a grand strategy uh, of Peloponnesian isolationism. Mm. That is to say, they there there is a, a, uh, a, a large body of land that sort of stretches out from the Balkans, connected to the mainland by a thin neck, uh, called the Peloponnesus. Uh, within it, the Spartans want to have an alliance that if there is a helot revolt, they've got the people, with the help of their neighbors, they can put the helot revolt down. And they have an ancient enemy, which had once been the hegemonic power, within the Peloponnesus, which is Argos. So by and large, the Spartans are not interested in getting involved in the larger world unless there's a power on the doorstep of the Peloponnesus that is a threat to their alliance. And that's what they fear Athens will be. And that is, in fact, what Athens becomes. Uh, so beginning in 465, uh, they want to rein in the Athenians, and they face a dilemma. They want to rein in the Athenians without opening the door to Persia. So they want to reduce their power, but not eliminate their power. Now, that's hard to do. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing. Uh, their leverage over Athens has to do with the fact that they can marshal the forces of the Peloponnesian League and march into Attica. And that is much reduced in the 450s when the Athenians build long walls linking the city of Athens with its port at the Piraeus, which is five miles away. And in effect, they turn Athens into an island. At that point, the Spartans do not have any way to deliver a knockout blow. The Athenians, for their part, can't deliver a knockout blow against the Spartans because the Spartans are a land power backed up by the forces of the cities within the Peloponnesus. 
Their only hope for defeating Sparta is to break up Sparta's league and to ally with Argos and certain members of Sparta's league and defend and defeat them within the Peloponnesus. So to defeat Athens, Sparta has to take to the sea, but they're land lovers, not easy for them to do. To defeat Sparta, the Athenians have to take to the land Mm. and put together a coalition that will give them the manpower to overcome what remains of the Spartan alliance. That's not easy to do. So you get what scholars call an enduring strategic rivalry uh, at a stalemate between these two powers. And then the Athenians, uh, after having come tolerably close to defeating Sparta, which changed Spartans at Sparta, Spartan attitudes to Athens, they begin to think, we have to knock them out entirely. Uh, uh, then the Athenians go off half-cocked, which they are wont to do. Uh, they are in the grips, I argue, of a kind of erotic longing for grandeur. And I use this word erotic because it's it's Thucydides language. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not sort of shoving sex into politics. Thucydides claims Pericles did that uh, in his funeral oration. The Greeks specialize in putting sex in politics. Yes. So. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Well, there is that. Um, uh, and Look, the expedition to Sicily uh, is really crazy. To begin with, Sicily is something like 10,000 square miles. Attica is about 2,000 square miles. Um, The largest city in Sicily is Syracuse, and the Athenians go there. They might have been able to defeat the Syracusans, but could they take the whole island? Even more important, if they took it, could they hold it? Yeah. You know, we took Iraq. Could we hold it? We took Afghanistan. Could we hold it? Or Hannibal. I mean. Yeah, that's right. Yes, but at a price. And can they pay that price? They don't have the manpower. So the whole project is crazy. Furthermore, it's very difficult even to be victorious against Syracuse because your supply lines are 800 nautical miles long through uh, very rough seas, and the technology of sailing ships is such uh, as to make that difficult, uh, and in winter impossible. And the technology of warships, they're, they're, they're flat. Yeah. So in a storm, they don't stand up well. And the, the Mediterranean can be very stormy, especially in the winter. So this is a very, very bold move, and it involves sending um, large numbers of men. Uh, And they come fairly close to winning before the Spartan Gallipus shows up because the Syracusans aren't ready. Hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, that's a normal human thing. Athens has never attacked before. Hamas has never yeah. made the kind of attack that that made on Israel in the last few weeks. Uh, the Russians, when they invaded Ukraine, thought the Ukrainians would be a pushover. They sort of ignored that they'd been preparing since nineteen four or since twenty fourteen for such an invasion. Uh, it's very easy to fool yourself. Yeah. Um, but the Syracusans don't believe anyone's going to come from. 
uh, I'll call it Eastern Greece from the Balkans against Syracuse because nobody ever has. Um, and there's one Syracusan and his sources are good and he warns them and they ignore him. Uh, so they're not ready. Their hoplites are not disciplined. Uh, they haven't been building ships. They have a bit of a Navy, but not enough of a Navy to take on the Athenians. Uh, their population is probably as large as the Athenian population, but they're not inured to war. And so the Athenians arrive and sort of step by step begin to wall them in, which is to say to starve them out. They control the sea. If they can get control of the land and wall Syracuse in, they win. Uh, and the Syracusans organize themselves and resist, but kind of half-heartedly. Um, uh, and then Gallipus shows up. Well, all it takes is a Spartan to drill the Syracusan troops who outnumber the Athenian troops and to use them intelligently. And he does the same thing over and over again. He creates a diversion. The Athenians focus on the diversion. He, you know, he, he waves his left hand, and then with his right hand, he strikes them somewhere uh, that they are neglecting. And he does it three or four times, outwits them over and over again. So look, when you, when you, when you engage in a military operation, you have to weigh the risks and the rewards. In this case, the potential rewards are tribute, but uh, at a price because you're going to have to garrison the place and that's going to cost money. Uh, and can the garrison be large enough really to hold it in the long run? That's very doubtful. The risks are that you lose everything and they, they, they get defeated. And then when they should have withdrawn, accepting that they're defeated, they send a second expedition. They double down on it. And when they do, with the help and guidance of Gallipus, the Syracusans destroy both expeditions, at which point the Athenians don't have much of a navy left, hmm. at which point those people who are paying them tribute begin to think about being free from tribute, at which point the Persians think this is the time when we can get back something of what we were driven out of uh, by the Athenians and their allies in the wake of, of, of the great Persian wars. So uh, it's madly audacious. If it succeeds in the short run, it's not likely to succeed in the long run. And it could fail disastrously. Yeah. And the resources at stake are huge. Uh, look, we're seeing the Russians do the same thing in Ukraine. Uh, they made a terrible blunder going in. Uh, and how many men have they lost? Some people think they've lost as many as 300,000 soldiers. That's an awful lot. Uh, in the course of the war in Afghanistan, they lost 13,000. And that was too many. So the repercussions of this war are a, a decisively weakened Russia. Even if uh, the Ukrainians don't win outright in the sense of recovering Crimea and recovering the Donbass and the other areas that were taken in, in 2014. Um, uh, and it's a tremendous opportunity for the United States and NATO. Uh, among other things, it's brought in Sweden 
and Finland into NATO, uh, which no one would ever have expected. Uh, here's another way of putting it. Uh, by exerting power, one can weaken oneself. Now, that doesn't sound sensible. Uh, in other words, um, you you become more powerful and therefore you become weaker. Well, the way you do that is by creating an alliance against you. I'll give you an example. Uh, in uh, the late 1890s and into the first decade of the 20th century, uh, the Kaiserreich, Germany, began to build a fleet. Prior to that time, Britain had been neutral and had leaned toward Germany. The effect of building that fleet was not to make Germany stronger. It was to make it we weaker because it drove the British into the hands of the French and the Russians. Uh, uh, th there's a sense in that in, 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 in the, the Athenians do exactly the same thing. Neutral powers begin to think, we have to stop the Athenians before they get to us. Mm. Uh, so sometimes uh, in, in, in apparently increasing your power, you weaken your power. I think, for example, the Chinese have done that. They have driven India, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan together, or oh, the Philippines, together with the United States, uh, simply by building a huge navy and by threatening Taiwan. All these other powers sit back and think, whoa, we have to unite and prevent this from happening. For, forgive me if this is sort of an obvious question, uh, but, you know, we're, we're not doing nothing with Ukraine. I mean, we're sending weapons and we're investing a lot of treasure in it. What does Sparta actually do for Sicily? <laughs> one guy, one one guy. The Corinthians send some ships. Okay, <laughs> are they just completely like watching, and they've got one advocate who's fomenting rebellion? Is that actually just completely it? They send one guy to take command, and later they send another Spartiate with some liberated helots. Yeah, uh, but really nothing. And the helots are fighting for Sparta. Well, uh, <laughs> you liberate them. Oh. <laughs> there were liberated slaves who fought for the Confederacy. Hmm. Um, uh, wow. Uh, well, and see, look, in certain places, South Carolina and Louisiana, there were freedmen who owned slaves. There were plantations owned by black people. Not very many. I mean, this is not a big thing. It's an anomaly, but they did exist. Uh, and there was a black militia in New Orleans that fought for the Confederacy, uh, more a tan militia than a black militia. But you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the uh, There are helots who are willing to fight for Sparta in exchange for not only a freedom, but a promise of land. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and why are they willing to do this? Because they think the Spartans are going to win. Uh, and they're not going to get their freedom any other way. Hmm. Uh, so, and, and the Spartans uh, like to use them abroad where they're no threat to Sparta. Right. So, and they start doing this in the Peloponnesian War. Brasidas takes a host of these people up to Thrace at one point. Uh, Gallippus doesn't take them with him, but later they send some. Not so very many. But look, Sparta's contribution to the war 
is really this one guy. That's all it takes. The Syracusans don't need money. They don't need weapons. They can make their own. Uh, whereas in our situation, the Ukrainians need the weapons. They don't need the men. They've got their own. Uh, so as far as I know, not, uh, not a single American serviceman has died in Ukraine. Uh, the, the, it's war on the cheap. Uh, you know, there are many people now who are talking about uh, the cost of this war. I mean, in, in comparison with a serious war, it's nothing. And what you gain from it can be tremendous. Uh, it's well worth what's being spent. Well, I guess where I would push on that is, and I'm curious how this pans onto the ancient situation. I mean, I don't think that we were going to go to war with Russia, were it not for the proxy war. I mean, maybe you disagree. And I guess similarly, if, if we look at the ancient war, Sparta and Athens, were they going to fight if not for the, the proxy war in Sicily? And if they did, how would it look different? Well, they were. They were eventually. No question. Both sides, if given an opening, they would have taken it. Um, I do disagree with you about Europe. Uh, and who I'll tell you who's on my side, who thinks that um, as goes Ukraine, so goes their own security. Lithuania. Oh, yeah. Latvia, Estonia, Finland, Sweden. Poland, Romania, the Czech Republic. In other words, everyone uh, who was either neutral or in the Warsaw Pact thinks their own future is at stake in Ukraine. Uh, and since most of those uh, states are in alliance with us, the Russians take Ukraine and then move on, and they talk openly about restoring the Russian Empire. Uh, and remember, the Russian Empire included Finland. It included a chunk of Poland. It included Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. Uh, so, and under the Warsaw Pact, it included uh, the Czechoslovakia. Uh, so, uh, there's a lot more at stake in this. Uh, it, the The Russian project, the Putin project, will not get off the ground if he stopped in Ukraine. <laughs> I'll I'll try not to get a sidetracked on this. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a big topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I just again, as with the Athenians and Sicily, there's a question of capability. Um, I mean, would Russia have had the capability to? I mean, Ukraine is humongous. It's really hard to get through all of Ukraine. They can't do it. A lot of that is because of us. A lot of that is also just because of Ukraine. They thought they could. Yeah. They went in to take the whole thing. And, uh, you know, they, they operated on the presumption that the Ukrainians wouldn't fight. Uh, and by the way, we did too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Biden offered Zelensky a ride. And he said, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Uh, so the, the, the uh, and, and Ukraine was just a stepping stone. And it has tremendous resources. Uh, one, one of the things it has is, most of the Soviet Union's weapons were fashioned in the Ukraine. One of the reasons they've done well in this war is they have an awful lot of people who know how to create weapons. Hmm. And they have been preparing for, they were preparing for um, uh, eight years before the Russians came back a second time. 
and they were being trained by the British and to some degree by us. Uh, the the uh, uh, now, there's an irony in this. You know, the Javelins missiles that were so very important against the, the Russian tanks, Obama denied the Ukrainians Javelin missiles. Trump let them have Javelin missiles. When Biden came in, he stopped the flow of Javelin missiles. Uh, so the Obama-Biden foreign policy had to be completely reversed when Zelensky said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition which put Biden on the spot. And after the disaster in, uh, in Afghanistan, I think politically he couldn't afford to say to Zelensky, no, we're not sending any ammunition. It, um, we may be doing the right thing, but <laughs> at least at the beginning, it was for the wrong reasons. Uh, the only question to be asked, you know, if you wanted to make a case against Ukraine, uh, what you would say is the thing that really matters is Taiwan, and uh, we are weakening ourselves vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Uh, I don't think that's quite true, because any any kind of war that's going to take place in the Pacific is going to take place at sea and not on the land. I, I was at present at a, a gathering, and I can't tell you what gathering. <laughs> the best kind. <laughs> yeah, a lot of leading people were there. Uh, and one former um, military historian who had fought in Iraq was arguing for sending tanks to Ukraine. Someone said, how many? He said a thousand. And he says, we'll never need them. We are not going to fight a war on the continent of Asia. These things are going to be fought out at sea. And in a place like Taiwan, tanks are useless. Just look at the mountains and that tells you everything you need to know about it. It... Um, Here's another way the Ukraine war was a gift. The Japanese have doubled their military budget from 1% of GDP to 2% of GDP. Now, that sounds like nothing. But Japan has the third largest economy in the world. So if you double your military budget, it's huge. And they're right next to Taiwan. The southernmost island in the Japanese chain is closer to Taiwan than the port's in mainland China are to the landing places in Taiwan. So Vladimir Putin is, I think he should be honored in the United States as a benefactor, <laughs> uh, just as the Athenians should be honored in Sparta as a benefactor when they decided to send their troops to Sicily. It's kind of interesting that as this conversation has gone on, we've come back all the way full circle to the eternal, are you a land or a sea power? Um, but I do want to ask, I mean, we've covered Ukraine, but there's a really recent and so recent that I worry it's too soon to really chat about it. But recent unrest and, and terrorism in Israel, uh, which is un in the process of becoming really a hot war, and it's unclear how the U.S. is going to participate in it. Um, and it's, it's not exactly, I mean, I don't know if the Sparta-Athens-Sicily proxy war parallel is exactly right in this instance, but I'm kind of wondering just because, I mean, now is really the time to, to discuss it. When you look at the record of the ancient world, are there lessons that we can draw in terms of how this conflict is going to shake out and how the U.S. should be handling it? Well, um, look, one general lesson both from the Sicilian expedition and from our own experience 
uh, with proxy wars uh, that we prosecuted and proxy wars that were prosecuted against us, is you don't want to, to be on the receiving end when the other side has got sanctuaries very near uh, where you're fighting. Hmm. In other words, if we can't go into Syria and Iran, we should think twice about getting involved in Iraq. If we can't, uh, can't go into Pakistan, we should think twice about getting involved in Afghanistan. Hmm. Uh, now, this situation is a little bit different. Uh, this is an Iranian proxy war. They've paid for it. We've helped them pay for it, of course. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, they've paid for it. Uh, they've helped organize it from the get-go. And I don't know if you know this, but in the last few hours, the Israelis have bombed uh, the airport in Damascus in Syria and the airport in Aleppo to prevent a plane landing uh, that was carrying uh, anti-tank weaponry on a fairly large scale uh, to uh, the the Shiite forces uh, in Lebanon. Uh, what the Israelis fear is a second attack uh, involving missiles from Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah in this case, uh, to coincide with the troubles that they're having with Hamas. And they're, they're very eager that that not happen because Hezbollah is supposed to have 100,000 missiles. So uh, the Iron Dome, and I've actually visited the Iron Dome uh, in Jerusalem, the Iron Dome's not going to be able to stop uh, a barrage on that scale. Um, uh, so this war could get much bigger. I mean, I could imagine an Israeli surprise attack on Hezbollah aimed at uh, destroying those missiles. Uh, and boy, would it be big. Uh, they, most of the missiles are, on, are in the basement of mosques and schools and hospitals and so forth. So it would be, uh, you'd see explosions like <laughs> we've rarely seen. Um, it could be that what will happen is the Israelis will take Gaza, step by painful step, and you'll have a war of attrition there. If there is a war of attrition there, the Israelis are likely to win it. Um, what role is the United States likely to play? Well, I would like to think that we would back the Israelis, but the current administration seems to want to uh, 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 sidle up to uh, the Iranian government. Uh, and they seem to be persuaded, as the Obama administration was, that this is the key to peace in the Middle East. I do not share that opinion. Um, if so, we will lean very hard on the Israelis to limit their retaliation. And this will just be another incident in uh, an ongoing struggle. Um, uh, the other thing is uh, Joe Biden hates Netanyahu. Um, and uh, Joe Biden's not really all there. Uh, and uh, his, his you, you know, when people um, lose their cognitive abilities, uh, the filters disappear and they say things that flit through their minds that ordinarily they would suppress. Um, uh, and, and Biden is the president. And he has asserted himself on occasion against the advice of everyone around him. The withdrawal from 
Afghanistan is a good example of that. And he might well do so again. So I have no idea what this administration is going to do. I note that we'd agreed to give $6 billion uh, to the Iranians. It had not yet been delivered, and the Biden administration has decided to follow through with the agreement and deliver the money. So we are funding Hamas. Yeah. Um, uh, hard to know. You know, uh, things are up in the air. If there is no Hezbollah attack, then the Israelis will subdue Hamas. If there is a Hezbollah attack, you're going to have a larger war. Well, um, we're starting to draw to the end of our time here. Uh, but I think over the course of this conversation, we've been discussing, are Athens and Sparta so different? Is the U.S. Athens or is it Sparta? And part of it strikes fear into my heart because I, I worry that we are Athens in, in a lot of the worst ways of saying it, that we have a lot of confidence um, in our own kind of military history and prowess. And it's, it's you know, sometimes we're likely to push ourselves into situations that uh, that might wind up draining us and ignore the, the bigger kind of problems on the table. When you look at the situation of our strategic situation now and the strategic situations of Athens and Sparta all these thousands of years ago, who do you think our situation mirrors more and who should we emulate more? I don't think our situation's like either one of them. Hmm. Uh, we're not like Athens. We really have no desire to conquer and extract tribute. Um, we're not like Sparta either. We aren't tied down by a helot population. Um, so uh, historically, you know, you, if you think about grand strategy, uh, grand strategy extends into everything. Uh, the man who understood it best was a guy named Fuller. Uh, who wrote a book in 1923, and he said, the first duty of the grand strategist is to appreciate the commercial and financial position of his country. Mm. Now, the Athenians and Spartans, they're not thinking about that, nor should they have been. He's talking about modern situation. To discover what its resources and liabilities are. Secondly, he must understand the moral characteristics of his countrymen, their history, peculiarity, social customs, and system of government. Uh, uh, for all these quantities and qualities form the pillar of the military arch, which it is his duty to construct. There's no difference between grand strategy and statesmanship. It arises from domestic considerations, meaning what are you afraid of? What do you need to protect? Uh, and uh, what are your interests in the outside world? And our story, there's kind of continuity. Uh, what's in our interest? To control the North American continent, to make sure that no great power has much leverage in Latin America or Central America or in Canada to the north of us, uh, to use the two seas, the Pacific and the Atlantic, as moats, and to make sure that there's no fighting on our territory. Now, to that end, in the 19th century, uh, prior to the 1890s, uh, we practiced a species of isolationism, with the Monroe Doctrine being the only exception. Think about that. That, that was our claim, stay out of our sphere of influence. Um, once you get a shift from the sailing ship to the steamship in war, and you could get from Europe to America in a week rather than in three months, 
we build the Panama Canal so that we can concentrate the Pacific and the Atlantic fleet together in a time of crisis. And then we then begin to think about making sure no one power controls Europe and no one power controls Asia in such a way as to have the kind of resources to be a real threat to us. All right, the technology has changed further. Things are much faster now, uh, but the fundamentals are the same. Uh, and so the question is, how do we uh, prevent Europe from coming under the domination of a single power? This would be Russia. That's relatively easy to do. How do we prevent Asia from coming and the offshore islands from coming under the domination of China, that's harder to do. I want to make a suggestion that our foreign policy establishment for the last 30 years, Republican and Democratic, has been a disaster. We built up Russia. We loaned them the money. We encouraged our corporations to develop their resources. They are powerful now because of us. We did the same thing with China. We created a rival uh, and we averted our gaze from the dangers. And we did it under Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, and the foreign policy establishment that got us into this mess is still running the show. And they ought to be pushed out and replaced because they, as practitioners of grand strategy, they are a disaster. All right. Well, I know that we have a hard stop, um, but I really, really appreciate your time and your insight. Uh, and as a recovering classicist, I guess it was really, really a delight to, to read your book. So thank you again. It's going to be linked in the show notes for any of the listeners who would like to purchase it. Okay. Thank you very much. Take care. Well, there you have it, Madisonians, Paul Ray on his recent book, Sparta's Sicilian Proxy War, in his series, The Grand Strategy of Classical Sparta, which is linked in the show notes if you'd like to check the book out. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate any ratings or reviews. It really helps us a lot here at Madison's Notes. You can also find out more about the Madison program and what we do on Princeton's campus at jmp.princeton.edu. There, you can find recordings of all of our previous lectures and a schedule of upcoming events that we're hosting. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time here on Madison's Notes.